I read this, the following in an article this week. I can't forget the shoes. Piles and piles of them filled the room. Of all the gruesome images I saw at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., that room filled with shoes from Jewish victims is the one thing I can't forget. The tragedy of the Holocaust reminds me of something I heard as a high school student. Ideas have consequences. Adolf Hitler did not come out of nowhere. Before there was the Holocaust, decades of philosophical theories advocating superior races were presented, nationalistic laws were written, and the use of eugenics to weed out inferior peoples arose. Throw in a dash of survival of the fittest from Darwinism and perhaps the pursuit of raw power from nihilism, and eventually humankind was poised to arrive in the concentration camp, a horrifying concoction built on various falsehoods. The author went on to say, some Christians shrug off any effort to study philosophies and isms. If we're to be biblical Christians, we must read the Bible in order to read the culture. It's important that we, as a sent people, evaluate the isms of this world in light of God's unchanging revelation. In other words, we read the Bible first so we'll know how to read the world news next. End quote. We read the Bible to know how to engage the people around us, he says. How does your understanding of the world impact you? The Bible reveals that wherever opportunities arise for establishing our separation from worldviews of those around us, we can always expect attempts to challenge our disconformity. Being on God's side marks us off from the world in Christ, and that also brings with it opposition. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there in the pew to follow along with. On, turn to page 421 and you'll find the text. We're going to be in verse 15 through 23 today. Nehemiah is one of the liveliest pieces of writing in the Bible. It's a sequel to the book of Ezra. They're actually one book together, recording the stories of the first of the first two remnants that returned from exile to Jerusalem. <clears throat> but Nehemiah tells the story of the, the, what fell, befell the third wave of returnees some 13 years after the second group had returned. Two, two main actions occur in this, in this book the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, and the recommitment of the returned exiles to fulfill their covenant obligations. The rebuilding of the walls. The walls, remember, as I've said to you before, were regarded as an extension of the house of God, the temple. The city would be its holy, it would mark the city and its holy, as holy in its markers. However, if the word of God, the scriptures, are not marking off the people, then in the end, all they are is a a group of odd folks with a, a wall temporarily. If they're not, what makes them special is the word marking them off. The book of Nehemiah is, is, is a, it's a general's diary. It's a governor's report. It's a civil record. It's a management handbook and a memoir all in one. In chapter four of Nehemiah, 
reveals his prompt counter moves, as you remember, in a single chapter to the opposition they were facing. He was not a man to fight new battles with old tactics. Remember the taunts that had been met by prayer and concentrated work in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4, and then plots were met by prayer and guard duty in verses 7 through 9, stronger threats by a general call to arms and the charge to keep your minds on the Lord in the fight, verses 10 through 14. That's where we left off last. Now the temporary lull is, is accepted for what it is, a chance to start building the wall again. But this time, do not disarm. If you look at the end of chapter, excuse me, there at the end of uh, verse 14, as we're getting a running start this morning, Nehemiah gives that rousing speech, rallied the people to fight. Do not be, he says, don't be afraid of them. The Lord is the awe-inspiring God. Go fight for your brothers and your, and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He gives that great call, that courageous call there. It's a scene of a immense tension and drama worthy of interest in its own right. But we must not forget that the future of the kingdom of God was at stake here. This was a battle against the purposes of Almighty God, aimed at destroying his determination to redeem his people through a coming, the coming of a Savior. And so now we pick up here in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 15 through 23. Listen again now to God's holy word. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the one who sounded the ram's horn was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. This is God's holy word. This is no mere history lesson. Wherever opportunities arise for establishing our separation from the worldviews of those around us, we can always expect attempts to challenge, as I said earlier, our disconformity. All too often we cave under the pressure, though. Dr. Derek Thomas notes that 21st century Christians can fall into the trap of worrying so much about our Christian liberties that we fail to live in a way that marks us as being separated first to the Lord. What he means is that we want what we want to do with the world, we want to do what the world does. Studiously avoiding asking the question, how then should we live? 
And Nehemiah shows us how staying fixed on the Lord was central as these people faced opposition. We can't help but see it twice in, in the text. But the lasting image that arrives out of this text is that of the builders of the city of Jerusalem who did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Practical realism, in the, as one person put it, in the piety exemplified in this book. You know, foundationally, if we're just going down to brass tacks, this, book, this text shows us there are, there are only two sides. There are two ways to live. There are those who are part of the world in opposition to God, and there are those who are siding with God and seeking his kingdom first. You have to decide where you are at in that today. You have to figure that out first. The idea that we can defeat Christians, that we can defeat the enemy separate from a vibrant relationship with God is also put down in this passage. So if we're not looking to the power of the Holy Spirit in faith, we are already in trouble. Do you follow me? If we're not looking for his help. Nehemiah, even with all the good steps you see taken in the passage here, is more confident, not in his strategy, but in God. His confidence went deeper. Our God will fight for us. He knew the truth of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord watches over the city, it's in vain. Here's the central point. It's there for you in your bulletin. Opposition is a sign for us to stay more fixed on God and his purposes. Opposition is a sign for us to stay more fixed on God and his purposes. And I want to give you three reasons why from the text this morning. Number one, God uses preparation to frustrate. God uses preparation to frustrate. Nehemiah was careful to give credit to God for the overturning the spiteful schemes of, of Sanballat and his, and his group. And the key sentence here I want you to see there is, God had frustrated it. You see that in the verse. How did he do it? Well, he used the preparations in the previous verses to frustrate the enemies of God's people. They thought they were going to get the sneak attack, and it wasn't going to happen now. God brought the schemes of these enemies to naught, maybe your translation says, to nothing through answering the prayers of Nehemiah. So no sneak attack here. God's overriding sovereignty worked through means to deliver his people is what I'm trying to tell you. God works through those means. Look at some key clauses and phrases here that show how the enemy was sent back to the drawing board. Verse 15, we knew their scheme. Verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other held the weapons. You see there in verse 16, the officers supported all the people. Verse 17, the laborers worked with one head, held a weapon with the other. The preparations for defense and the continuation of the work reversed the effects of terrorism and demoralized the enemies here. Well, church, you know that the opposition to building here, the opposition that's happening here in this part of the storyline of the Bible, it only, prefigures, it only prefigures the opposition to the church. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So while we're not building a wall around a city, we are seeking to mark a territory unto worship in a spiritually dark world. Obstacles and foes can make us work smarter, though, and live wiser and, give us, and, and, and make us give up our purpose and way of living and turn our attention back to the focus on God. Christian, have you learned to live wiser and smarter as you have encountered obstacles in your walk? Has it made you wiser? And if not, why not? Are there areas perhaps you've maybe dug in your heels and not submitted to the Lord? Obstacles should cause us to live wiser and smarter in seeking God's help. You know, perhaps today it's being encouraged to be more devoted to the word daily in time in prayer, just as Ishvan was praying this morning. Perhaps it's being more deliberate to invest more into spiritually rich things in your home. It's amazing how we let the world disciple us the majority of the week, and we need to be feeding the Spirit. I was sharing with someone this week that viewing answers in Genesis has been really good for us as a family. They have an app. I highly commend it. Uh, pray for wisdom also to discern your trials if you want to grow through them, to be wiser and smarter in opposition. Pray for wisdom to discern your trials in depth so you, might, you may grow. and You can just say, Lord, make me prepared to frustrate the schemes of the evil one that are coming against me, that are coming against my family. Prepare me. I'm, well, I'm willing to learn and grow. You see, the enemy wants us to be discouraged by obstacles and create in us a quit mentality. You have that quit in you? We all can have it. Just enough self-pity will, will bring it. But if we adjust our way of living and wisely living while continually to be resolute to live under God's word, the opposition will fail and get and God, well, here's the main thing, gets the glory. But here's the thing. I, I think there's, this is a good opportunity for me as a pastor just to stop and ask, do we know, are we prepared? Do we know the scheme of the evil one? Do we know there's, know there's his schemes? Are we living in discouragement or returning to, uh, are, we, are we returning to faithfulness? Spiritual warfare is a reality. From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures paint a picture of a cosmic battle that is largely unseen. But you know what you can't miss? That evil exists. There are some actions you can tell something sinister and dark is behind that. Satan is, in fact, the roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. You know what that means? He's waiting for his opportunity to get you, to ensnare you, to undo you and your walk. Our enemy is an accuser, a deceiver, a murderer, and a liar. He is the spiritual ruler of a of fallen man, the dragon who dares to fight against the angels of God. And as believers, we wrestle against principalities and powers that work to lure us into sin. 
The powers disguise themselves as angels of light, don't they? Seeking to infiltrate the church through false teaching. The enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But let me remind you, Satan is not the focus of the Bible. God is. One of the roles, uh, one of, the roles of, of the devil is to be a discourager. He has a variety of tools that he uses to try to hinder God's work. It could be physical pain. A recent fall, perhaps, in lust, giving in to gossip, waylaying you with being weighed down in guilt, a family member who is in love with themselves. He can use self-comparison, envy, and oppressive thoughts. The devil will work into our emotions and relationships causing grief, sorrow, and lack of forgiveness. That's where he wants you in. That's the field he wants you to play in. That's why the Bible says we need to renew our minds with the word. 1 Timothy 3 warns us about the snare of the devil. Friends, God's word prepares us, prepares us if we read it to discern the enemy's strategies for defeat. Maybe today go home and talk about those strategies. Get prepared. Here people were willing and available to help each other. Do you see that in the text? There's something about being prepared in spiritual warfare that includes people being willing and available to help each other. What about us? Are we too self-focused? Christians need to help one another in the same way because we become so afraid of possible dangers that we can't get anything done. You know me in this room, at a moment's note, can you be sidelined by overwhelming anxieties? The room is full of people in here who would love for you to pray with them today. Do you know that? Can you see them, though? Can your eyes see the person who could use some time of prayer and encouragement in this room? You see, by looking out for each other, we'll be free to put forth our best efforts, confident that others are ready to help us when needed. Man, it's comforting to know in the battle that I've got brothers and sisters to lock arms with. That's a comfort to me. I know there are saints right here in this service who would, who would, who would stop what they were doing and come to my aid if I reached out to them for help in the battle. Don't cut yourself off from others. Join together for mutual benefit. You need them as much as they need you. And isn't that, beloved, what we've covenanted to do as a church? I mean, shouldn't we be happy to be uh, playing a role of support if God gives us the resources like he did these folks here to support? Perhaps you're in a period where you're not going through what somebody else is going through. And God has given you resources to support rather than focus on yourself. Are we approaching uh, our job as a, uh, as, a, as a church? Are we doing, are we, are we, what I mean is, are we building up others and staying armed with the sword of the Lord? Do we know how God frustrates the attacks of the evil one by working in and through God's people and their preparation? Your preparation is not only helping you, it can help others. When we are praying and when we are reading God's word, we are getting armed for battle in place to build into the kingdom of God. 
When we show up to church to be a blessing and to be, and to be cared for, we are making ready. So let me be clear. Christian obedience is being controlled, led by, in step with the Holy Spirit. But Paul described his ministry as, not I, but, the, but by the grace of God that was with me. And Nehemiah would have said the same thing. And that's what he does say. Hey, God did this. God brought it to nothing. God frustrated it in his work in us. All of that to say God uses preparation to frustrate. Opposition is a sign for us to stay more fixed on God and his purposes. Reason number two, number two, point two. God encourages us in the fight. God encourages us in the fight. Key sentence in verses 18 through 20. Well, you can't miss it. It's right there. Verse in that, in that section is God will fight for us. Look at the scene. The laborers worked. The builders are armed. Nehemiah highlights their enormous work and how spread out they are. So to help bolster them, he puts it in their high-tech communication system. Do you notice that? This is a ram's horn. That horn sounds the call for support, right? You hear it? Come running. Rally. We have no record that the, the trumpet was ever used, but simply knowing it would issue a warning when needed. And that was reassuring that there was a plan in place. God was working through Nehemiah and encouraging those people in the fight. The promise of open, immediate communication helped the group counter the enemy's threats and accomplish the reconstruction of the wall in record time. One of the ways God has given us encouragement is through his work in the hearts of our fellow soldiers, our fellow believers in the church. Sometimes the most discouraged in the church are those most cut off from regular communication. They miss out on the midweek opportunities, Bible studies or Sunday mornings to their own demise. They miss out they miss the sound of the horn. They don't sound the alarms themselves, and so more anxiety will enter their lives. Let's look back at the text again. Nehemiah confesses that ultimately they will succeed by the grace of God. His trust is not in the horn system. Come on, you know that's not what he's saying. Or the organization of the people, but in God, who they are striving to serve in accord with his word. How does God encourage them to fight? The faithful have never been abandoned by God. Nehemiah is just a small pointer to the one true servant of the Lord who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age, Jesus said. God's true people have always known his help. Look at the ways they were able to organize, collect, build, and help each other. This is some feat. This is no small task. I, a couple weeks ago, I gave you all a map of, the, of the, the great project that was going on here. And there, are, uh, there is great evidence of, this, of the remains of this wall to this day. God has been seeing to it. They have what they need, exposing areas where they need to fortify and hear and answer to Nehemiah and the people's prayers. So go back to verse 10, what we were last time. The despondency of verse 10 
now come down here in the verse 20, was replaced with renewed vigor for their God-given mandate to repair the walls. What had brought about this change? It's supernatural. It was a fresh realization of the presence of their mighty defender, our God, will fight for us. How else can you explain it? The shift from verse 10 to verse 20. God fought for his people not because he was the tribal God of the Jews, but rather to move forward his mysterious and predestined plan to bring salvation to sinful men and women through Christ, born within the pale of the Jewish race. And so Nehemiah's assurance reveals he knew of earlier occasions when God fought for Israel. That refrain there is not a new statement that Nehemiah came up with. No, it appears several times in the Old Testament. You see, God is the warrior who led his people across the Red Sea. When David killed Goliath, not with a sword and a javelin, but in the name of the Lord whose battle it was, 1 Samuel 17. Remember the Assyrian onslaught that King Hezekiah, he didn't want the people of Judah to think that they were left to their battle, to, to, to battle, uh, you know, to ba- left to their battle courage, their war experience, and their skill with weapons. You're not left to that. He wanted them to know that they had been amazingly blessed with something far more important, one that they could not and must not forget. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us stand and to fight our battles. Second Chronicles 32. You know, this morning, maybe you're new to Christianity. And you need to understand that the Bible teaches what we think is obvious, is that we live in a fallen world. It is war in this age between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Between God's revealed will and the world's desires for self. It can be exhausting, frustrating, and discouraging. We all go through moments where we, could, we, we, we wish life could be, just be easier. We wonder why parenting has to be such a continual spiritual battle. We, we wish that marriage would just be free of conflict. We all would love it if there were no conflicts at our job or in church. We would all, but we all wake up to a war-torn world every day. It is the sad leg- legacy of a, of a world that has been broken by sin, and it's constantly under the attack of the enemy. And so we come to the Bible, and we see tremendous acts of deliverance such as these designed to publicly display the awesome strength of God, the Lord of armies. But let me be clear, it's not really the nations of this world from which God's people require ultimate deliverance. That wasn't Israel's main problem. The greater enemy, according to Scripture, is sin and death that separates us from the life of God. The problem is not outside of us as the world is against us, you know, like the world's against us being happy. The world's message is always, everybody else conform to me. The problem's never me. The problem must be out there. That's what the world wants to tell you. The Bible flips it. The Bible says the main fundamental issue is our own sin. And people also who have their own sin, sin against us. That's true. Because all have sinned against God. You know what that means? That means we and the whole world have rebelled against God, doing what we want above God. 
And think about it, a world full of sinners explains, well, explains the divorces, the drugs, adulteries, pornography, human trafficking, men lusting after men, women lusting after women. It explains lying politicians and how we can be mixed with some good deeds and yet have major collapses. The Bible reveals that we have none loved God and sought him. No, he pursues us for rescue. That's why it's so amazing to hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes upon him, trusts in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Can you hear me? Can you hear me this morning? That God loves you, not because you're so amazing, but because you and I are not. We have been, like everyone else, self-worshipping sinners. And today, you don't have to die in your sin and face God in eternal judgment, but you can have everlasting life if you can hear me this morning that God loves you and he's willing to forgive you if you repent of your sins. Take God's side against your sin. Turn from your sin and trust not in yourself, but trust in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is worthy of all your trust because he's the only one who can save. He is truly God and truly man, the only one who fulfilled all righteousness. He was... He, Uh, He never had sin. He never had sin in him, and he never disobeyed the Lord, and he went to the cross as a substitute for sinners to bear God's wrath, to bear our sins in our place for any and all who repent and believe and to show that God accepted that payment because the wages of sin is death. There's a cost to sin. He raised Christ from the dead to say it was not only finished but acceptable to God the Father. If you want to be saved and reconciled to God, you must repent and trust in Jesus. That's your main problem today is not uh, some other thing outside yourself. There There are outside obstacles that you will face. But the first thing, the most important thing, is sin. And Christ is our only hope. The gospel of Jesus helps us bring this passage even more so into the fullness of today. Like these battles in the Old Testament, the conquering Christ came to slay the cosmic enemies of sin and death for his people, and he won. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's Romans chapter 8, 31, 35, and 37. Remember that in the Bible, all the way back in Genesis, it was God who put in place the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, God says. He put the enmity there between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that would lead to the enemy, to the enemy's defeat at Christ's cross where he would crush the head of the enemy. The sovereign God even allows spiritual battles to take place in our lives in order to accomplish the greater good of his will. We see that in the book of Job, and we see it even here in Nehemiah. Chuck Lawless, who's one of my favorite teachers, I love Dr. Lawless. He's so encouraging and helpful. He said this in an article on spiritual warfare, because the Bible story is about the one who will ultimately cast the devil into the lake of fire, Our task as spiritual warriors is not to know Satan well. It's to know God so intimately that Satan's counterfeit becomes obvious by comparison, end quote. Oh, friends, that we would draw near to God. 
we would put our trust in him, that we would grow in our faith. God, we believe, help our unbelief. The Lord who has enlisted us in his army is more powerful than the devil. Our divine captain equips us with armor and gives us strength to conquer. He doesn't say put on your armor. He says put on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, doesn't he? You, you and I, we got no armor against the devil. He says to put on the armor of the Lord. In the language of Nehemiah, our God will fight for us. God's work then and, and now is accomplished by faith. Our God will fight for us and accompany that with obeying him and work, our hard work. We're not saved by our works. We're saved unto him, though. And to know God and to recognize his sovereignty is to understand that we gain spiritual victory only through Christ, who has been raised above every power and authority. All that to say, God encourages us in the fight. Opposition is a sign for us to stay more fixed on God and his purposes. Number three, third reason. God calls us to readiness. God calls us to readiness. Verses 21 through 23. The key sentence in that section is where it says, each carried his weapon even when washing. Now, I, I, I'd like to interview some of the military guys. Or maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you had to do, do something like this. This is some intense stuff here. How does, he call, how does God call them to readiness? The call is in the example and in careful preparation and alertness. This was not a call to anxiety. It was a call to faith in God and obedience to arm themselves in case they needed to stand their ground. Notice verse 21. We see how the work continues with people being armed at the same time. Sure, it was inconvenient, but they were, they were being orderly and diligent and vigilant. When Charles Spurgeon started his church magazine in 1865, he borrowed the title from Nehemiah and called the publication The Sword and the Trowel. You see the two instruments, the, one for construction and one for defense. He said it was a, a record of combat with sin and labor for the Lord. Friends, it's not enough to build the wall. We must be on guard lest the enemy take it from us. Building and battling are both a normal part of the Christian life if we are faithful disciples. I know building sounds like uh, building without having to fight sounds much better, right? It certainly does. But we need to remember to do both. Know how in verse 22 the shifts of the night work and guard were put in place. Those ships were put in. Nehemiah drew everyone in closer who were on the outside of the city at one time helping them. He said, no, no, we're going to bring them in, put them under the protection that he had organized. And then note how they stayed ready for battle, not changing their clothes, and how they stayed armed even when they were washing. I mean, it illustrates how believers are to live ready. Sometimes the devil will come at us unrelenting. In this opposition to rebuilding the wall, we can see the progression of the methods the devil uses to get them discouraged, to stop the work. And friends, let me just note, if that fails, he doesn't quit. You have to remain on guard and prepared with your armor on because the opposition will continue. Puritan scholar Joel Beakey said this, Satan makes strategic retreats so that he may attack again. Christ defeated all Satan's devices 
And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season, Luke 4.13. When the devil is quiet, Beaky says, he's reloading. Therefore, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation, Matthew 26, 41. There are no ceasefires in this battle. It's a war without a truce. Christians must always live with one hand on the work of the kingdom and the other hand ready for spiritual battle. Do not think yourself strong, Beaky said, and, and start to play with temptation as if it were a pretty pet. He, another uh, author said, take heed of venturing upon the occasions of sin and coming near the borders of temptations. Our hearts are gunpowder, and therefore we must take heed of sparks, end quote. All that to say is God calls us to readiness. How, do you, how does your understanding of the world impact you? Do we understand we were created by God and for God? Do we understand we're all sinners under God's just wrath and headed for destruction? And do you understand that God loves you and calls you to turn back to him today before it's too late? And do you understand that God's word equips you as a believer to stand ready against spiritual warfare? All of that to ask you is this. Are you living a marked off life for him or are you living no different than the rest of the world. Let's pray. Lord, there are some here today who are down and discouraged, tired, and we pray for power from above for the grace to make preparations, Lord, for the grace to see how you encourage us, for the grace to make ready and to live ready constantly. We cannot do this. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. And we trust you will help us, for you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound judgment. We hold to that, Lord, with with tightly grasping hands. Help us to stay fixed on Jesus. So Lord, and remind us that Lord, in the midst of this, of this difficult world, we have a hope like none other. We have Jesus in life and death. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.